Hello, everybody. Jace here. Quick message before we get to the main episode. Uh, you know, I try not to get too political on the show. Maybe if that's something that really interests the guest, we might get into a little bit of politics, but mostly we're here to just celebrate comics. But uh, I can't ignore what's going on in the world, specifically the Russian invasion of the Ukraine. So uh, on our Twitter, pinned as the tweet, is a link to UNICEF which is an organization that focuses on uh, areas of the world where there is a lot of strife, war going on. Specifically, they try to provide clean water, medical care, and other uh, essential needs specifically for children and families. So regardless of which side of the fence you're on, whether or not you believe that one side or the other is right or wrong, uh, we can all agree that children and their families shouldn't be suffering for the choices that their leaders are making. So please, if you have a few dollars, uh, every little bit helps. You can go to unicef.org, that's U-N-I-C-E-F dot O-R-G, and just look for the Ukraine appeal. Click there, or you can go to the Comic Source Twitter account, and the link is there for you to donate. So uh, again, appreciate the support, everybody, and I uh, hope you're all being safe out there. Welcome to another episode of The Comic Source. I'm your host, Jace. Real treat for you today. A treat for me as well. This is a, a bucket list creator who has been on the podcast once before to talk about uh, his animated work. Specifically, we talked to him at uh, New York Comic Con 2018 about the Constantine movie. But we're finally having him on a dedicated episode here to talk comics. It's Jam Dimateus. Jam, thanks for joining me. My pleasure. How are you doing? I'm great. I'm great. Uh, how, how about yourself? I always preface it this way, considering the state of the world, I'm doing just fine. <laughs> well, uh, that's good to hear. Uh, I, I've been sort of living in your world for these past few weeks, preparing for this. So uh, reread Brooklyn Dreams, and then obviously your current Marvel work, uh, you've brought Ben Riley back in yep. sort of a, an interesting time frame. So we'll, we'll talk about that uh, as well. It's so interesting because this series is set at a at, during the the clone saga the infamous clone saga uh from marvel yeah, it always has to be called the infamous clone it, saga. it, it no, does <laughs> it does now i'm not i don't say that to say negative things because there's no, a lot i of understand I, yeah. I say the same thing it's okay yeah. yeah there's a lot of great stuff in there uh but one thing that i find interesting is the fact that again it's it's sort of a nebulous thing there are things that are are sort of tangentially mentioned there that sort of modernize it it's not specifically set in the 90s, because then that would mean. Right. You know, right. That's one of the things we wrestled with, actually. It's like, OK, so, what, you know, it's not the 90s. It's maybe it's five years ago, Spider-Man time, you know. Mm -hmm. So I had to dance around things like what kind of cell phones do they have? Right. You know, and then all these little bits of technology. So we just sort of we moved around that stuff. So we, we couldn't pin it down to a particular year. But in my head. It's whatever it is. It's like, you know, he was away for five years and maybe this is three or five years ago, you know, that this happened. Yeah. And it's right there on the first panel, first issue. Uh, it says something like some time ago or a few years ago. There's no, yeah. it's not like there's yeah. a, 
a date. You know, you're not. Yeah, when I actually, my original script, it said five years ago, and my editor said, let's not even be that specific. You know? <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. So uh, obviously you have a huge, long history with Ben Riley uh, and with Spider-Man himself. So let's start with this. If someone were to come up to you and say, okay, and I know there's this new uh, Ben Riley Spider-Man series, the humanity agenda, what's it about? Like, what are you going for here? You know, I, I do have a long history with Ben, and, and, and I've said it before, but it's really, really true. When you, when you write these characters, they stop being characters and they start being people. And just like in life, you have favorite people. You know, you may like this person over there, but you really like that person over there. And, and Ben is one of those people that I just feel a very, Peter too, very, very deep personal connection to. Um, they're very, very real to me. And as I've also said before, it's like, I know them better than I know some of my friends because I know every aspect of their psyches. I'm in their heads. I'm literally living in their heads, you know? So the chance to bring Ben back, he's always been a character that's resonated with me. Um, and, you know, for those that know the clone saga, it's the whole, I, the whole idea was that there had been this clone. Ben comes back. He's the clone. Up, you know, upends Peter's life. And then at the point that this story starts, Ben has found out that he's not the clone. He's the real guy. He's been on the road for five years with no life under an assumed name. Um, and now Peter and Mary Jane go off to Portland uh, to have their baby. And, and Ben comes back to New York to be Spider-Man again. He's been the Scarlet Spider for, you know, whatever it is, maybe it's six months in Marvel time, you know, mm -hmm. but now he's going to be Spider-Man again. But the problem is he can't be Peter Parker again because there is a Peter Parker out there with a wife and a child on the way who's living in Portland. So he's still this assumed name, this assumed persona, Ben Riley. Um, so he has no life. Really, even though he's back, he can't turn back to old friends or family. Well, there's no family left. Aunt May has died. Um, he can't turn to his old friends or his old life or his old work. The only thing he has is Spider-Man. But as Ben, he's absolutely nowhere. And a part of him, because he spent five years on the road thinking he is a, in his own mind, a worthless clone, not even human, part of him doesn't even think he deserves friendship or family or anything good in his life. So this story along with all the super heroics and the slam and the bang. And we see lots of old villains show up and there's a big mystery about who's behind it all. And there's a serial killer on the loose and all these things. But what the story is really, really about is Ben's journey, finding his place in this new life, in this new world um, and opening up to people again. That's part, you know, the, the title of the humanity agenda applies to Ben and it applies to our antagonist as well. So this is what's so fascinating to me about this, especially to set it back then, uh, you know, in, in kind of the, the, that time period of the Clone Saga, because we've had subsequent Ben series, right? Peter David right. did one. In fact, right now on the pages of Amazing, Ben is, is Spider-Man. And I know, you know, you don't have to be beholden to that. You're more thinking, OK, who, who has been at that time? Yes. Um, but at the same time, there's also you, you can't go too crazy because we know, obviously, Ben survives. <laughs> well, we can't we can't change the future. Right. But no one has explored this moment in time. Exactly. And it's a really important moment in time for Ben. So that's what we have. And, and you know, so maybe we can't go wider, but we can go deeper, if you know what I mean. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Use that phrase moment, one moment in time, which has a lot of connotations with with Spider-Man, specifically uh, with his marriage, which brings me to an, another point. Um, and it's this, again, idea of duality. And it's so meta because in my mind, it goes to the character of Ben and, and what was possible at the time. Uh, I've heard you in interviews talk about, yes, 
Ben was going to be revealed as the original. Peter Parker was the clone. He was going to go off and it was going to be a brand new start. Yeah. New number one, new supporting cast, all that sort of stuff. And, and I know in a way it was, Hey, let's have our cake and eat it too. There's a peer, uh, a portion of the fandom that likes this idea of more freedom. He's not married. He's not tied down, tied down. You can go back to a more fun, loving, lighthearted Peter Parker and Spider-Man stories. But the, the dichotomy there is that Ben is a much darker character yes. in a lot of ways because of what he's been to. Can you talk about that? So those things don't necessarily seem like they, they would mesh. Right, right. Well, you know, well, part of that with the rebooting would have been that journey back to, mm. to that other okay. aspect of himself. You know, but no, but they are. That's, that's why I love the character. I always say he's Peter Parker, but he's not. He's been on the road for five years and it has not, you know, with rare exceptions, it has not been much fun. He has felt, you know, uh, alone, lost, worthless. Um, you know, he found love only to lose it. Um, it. It's been a rough time. So he is Peter, but Peter turned and twisted a little bit and darkened quite a bit. Um, and that's what makes him interesting. And yet at his core is that same uh, compassionate, self-sacrificing, altruistic guy who will who will go to the farthest edge and all over the edge to do the right thing, you know? And that's, that's what's so great about him. So the, the dichotomy is right within him that he is, he, you know, he is that, he does have that darkness, but he also at his core has that light. So will we in this series, you know, obviously it's the beginning of that journey that you would have done back then. Are you going to have enough time in, in five issues to, well, not to totally transform him, but to take a major step forward. That's what this story is about, is Ben taking a major step forward. Yeah. By the end of the five issues, he's not the same guy that he was at the beginning of the five issues. Gotcha. And then obviously would be, I've heard you say you'd be open to doing more, even an ongoing. Oh, I would love to do more. Yeah. I, I think there's, a, there's, there's more. Well, there's a certain, because just what you'd said before, because there's a certain point you're going to bump up against, you know, the other events in Marvel time. But there's certainly room for another series or two in there, I would think. Yeah, the other thing that's really fascinating to me, going back to this idea of Clone Saga, not only do we have Ben Riley, obviously we have Peter Parker, we have Kane, who's this, you know, was the first clone, deformed. Another great character, I think, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very, very complex. And then, uh, and that, this is spoilers, everybody, for the third issue, came out a week ago, hope you've had a chance to read it. If not, pause this, go read it, come back. Right, uh, we see we see Spider-Side. Spider-Side right. is back. Uh, as a clone as well. So in my mind, I'm, now you got four. Now you got four. In my head, it, it's the brother. You see it back there. It's the brothers Karamazov. It's the brothers, you know, the brothers Parker. You've got these four brothers, one of whom is sort of the bastard brother, like, you know, Smerdyakov was in the brothers Karamazov. And that's spider side. Um, and, you know, that's what part of me would love to do a series with the four of them and really play with the contrasts and the th things that are wildly different, the things that are the same. Um, I think that would be a great story to put all four of those characters in a story together, together, actually working together and really exploring the differences between them. Yeah. Being forced to work together doesn't mean they necessarily get along. Exactly. Like in the brothers. It's like real brothers. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right? Like real brothers, like the brothers Karamazov, which yeah. you mentioned uh, Spider-Side as uh Smirnikov, which to me yeah. that's obvious. If you had to cast the other three, and I know they they don't really fit. It doesn't really fit. I, I mean, you know, maybe. Well, Ivan is a bit wilder, so maybe Kane is Ivan. Okay. Maybe uh, Peter is Alyasha. 
Yeah, I think you'd have to and, go. And yeah, and Ben is Dimitri. That kind of works. Yeah, it's not exactly. Yeah, they don't. There's yeah, no well, rough edges. Now we'll pause again while everyone goes off and reads the Brothers Caramels <laughs> and it comes back, right? <laughs> well, you know, and that's what's. That so really works. I like that. Yeah. And, th- and that's what's so fascinating to me because anybody who's read that book knows that it's that is a book you can read over and over and get more yes. and more out of it because the questions that Dostoevsky gives us this idea of, you know, why does God let bad things happen? If there is a God, why do bad things even exist? It's a question of, of faith and morality. These are not questions that even have answers. It's, they're almost rhetorical. And it's asking us to think, and I know, I know people sometimes don't give, uh, well, I think all the time, most people don't give the comics medium enough credit. You can go and watch any number of videos doing analysis on, uh, you know, uh, we're going to talk about William Blake's Tiger, Tiger. You can watch that. You can uh, go see uh, Brothers Karamazov analysis. There's not too many people breaking it down intellectually. But the journey that you've been on, you know, your whole life, looking for duality, looking for meaning, looking for spirituality, and you decided to become a writer. And, and a lot of your writing is in comics, but there's still value. There's still worth to these stories, right? Right. You know, we shouldn't even have to use the word still in there. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That's like that outside point of view on what comics are, you know? And I think people, of course, especially with superhero comics, they think even less of that. And yet at the same time, what's the most popular genre in the world right now? What got people out, out, of, their, uh, out of their homes and back to the movie theaters with Spider-Man and Batman, you know? Mm-hmm. So even there's the duality. You know, people still, there were certain people that still like, it's really different though, when I think about it, you know, from go, go back even 20, 10, 20 years and to now, because I think even in Hollywood, you know, people that were like 12 year old kids reading the Clone Saga are now studio executives or whatever. We, there's a whole generation of people out there in power who know and understand comics. The people that are making these movies for the most part are also fans. They understand the value of this stuff. And of course, comics isn't just superheroes. Comics is anything you want it to be. Yeah, you know, exactly. It's, it's anything. This, you know, this idea that um, the, the public has it, that, that superheroes and comic books are one and the same when they're not. They're not even the same in my own career. I've done so many different things and worked in so many different genres. Yeah, and there's so much value in, in story, you know, from, from the earliest, you know, our earliest beginnings as a, a species, we have told stories. And I think you can tell so much about where a society is at a particular moment by looking at what's important to them through the fictions and the fantasies that they. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I sometimes wonder if, if, you know, our our stories sort of create the reality, you know, the the past few years, it's kind of felt like we've been living in some post-apocalyptic science fiction novel, you know, and you think about, you know, 10, 15 years of like post-apocalyptic movies and books and everything it's like we beat the drum beat for it and here it is you know it's like be careful what you wish for on a, on a level it's, it's an interesting thing the the i think our stories are very very important to us uh not just as entertainment but they nourish our souls and and they express and create our worldview yeah exactly i don't know if you're familiar with james tynan's department of truth from image but I, i've heard similar. it but i haven't yeah. i haven't read it no. yeah similar to that that's this idea the department of truth is trying to control what people believe because if enough people believe something if enough people believe the world is flat the world becomes flat right and we have seen that literally in recent years i yeah. mean that, that it doesn't matter what reality is if you and it's, it's what the nazis called the big lie right you repeat mm-hmm. it enough and enough and enough and people will accept it yeah perception is is reality yeah which is, yeah which is fascinating uh well i want to go back to uh the third issue of 
uh, Ben Riley's, you, and there you change the line. You say spider, spider burning bright, but it's one of my favorite poems, Tiger, Tiger by William Blake. Right. Everybody can see it on my background there. And, and, and uh, Blake actually did the, uh, the illustration of that, that tiger as well. I've always thought of it right. as Blake a, did comic books, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Words, this, and, words and pictures. That's words comic and pictures. books. Yeah. Fantastic. Now, so this is a, a, a poem in my mind. It, it talks a lot about what fear is uh, and, and why, again, going back to this idea of why bad things happen, just like brothers Karamazov. Um, the, the idea of the poem is, you know, why would God create a, such a fearsome creature as a tiger when he also created something like a, a lamb? So, Right. I, you must be a big fan. I, I haven't necessarily heard you talk about William Blake. You must be a big yeah. fan. Is Tiger Tiger something that, that speaks to you? You know, well, I, just, I also want to say, but, you know, it's it's not just why, you know, why did God create this terrible thing? But but I, I feel like there's also a sense of wonder about the tiger, too. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? It's not right. just yeah. like, oh, God, this is an evil, horrible thing. This is a majestic thing that's capable of terrible things. But, it's, you know, he he's not hating the tiger in that poem. And as for William Blake, when I was about... When I was 17, when I was a senior in high school, I had, a, I had an English teacher that was uh, very influential in my life. And he's the one that turned me on to William Blake. And there was something in there. And I could probably never express or explain it, but he, you know, he was a visionary. He saw, in, in a way, uh, you know, in the art world, I love Van Gogh. It's like, and they, they both didn't just see reality. They saw into and through to other layers and levels of reality. You know, and that, that comes through in Blake's poetry that comes through years ago, I went and I saw a Van Gogh show at the Met in in Manhattan. And by the time I walked out, I was physically exhausted because there was so much literally energy coming out of these paintings, Mm -hmm. permeating my cells, you know, Uh, just because he just, he, he had captured something so deep and so profound in those pictures. And, And Blake, Blake was the same way, you know, he, he saw into other, other layers and levels of reality. And I think when I was 17, I didn't really understand what he was getting at, you know, as life went on, I think I got to have more of a sense of what he was talking about, about those other layers and levels of reality. But I was, you don't have to understand something necessarily to respond to it, you know, because mm-hmm. there's always some part in here that gets it, even if your mind doesn't get it. And that's the way I responded to Blake. I just loved it instantly. And I'm not someone who's in love with poetry necessarily. But there are certain poets over the years that have jumped out. And, and, and Blake, and years ago, years ago also, I was in London for a convention, and there was a, a Blake show at a museum there, and they had his original art there. Oh, wow. It was, it was incredible. It was just, just amazing. Loved it. Really, really loved it. So, yeah, it's so funny, this, the, the spider spider thing. It's, it's been identified with Craven for so long. Sometimes I forget that it started with Blake. You know, it's like, oh, isn't that Craven's poem? Wait a minute. No, no, that's William Blake's poem. What are we talking about? Well, that's what's so fascinating to me, because, again, it's, it's going back to this idea of, of duality, which, which I always think we even need to take it a step further, because, uh, you know, in so much of your work, it's about finding identity and, and kind of the war between making the good choices and the bad choices. We all have the capacity for, you know, great good and great evil, if you want to put it that way. But there's always, le- you know, levels and, and complexities. Right. Um, and, and that idea of this poem for, for Craven, in my mind, Craven's Last Hunt was a lot about Craven's fear, you know, fear of being irrelevant, fear of not being around anymore. And now you're bringing it in to uh, to the Ben Riley story. And, you know, what is it that that Ben fears? I mean, is that something that you're, you know, you're, are you bringing this spider spider in to, to talk about the duality of Ben and to talk about the, what he fears? You know, I didn't consciously do that, but that doesn't mean it's not absolutely correct. 
<laughs> you know what I mean? A lot of times right. I'll read story, my stories later and I'll go, oh, wow, that's really interesting the way that connects to that. And this means that refers back to this. And I wasn't, my unconscious put it in there, but my conscious mind didn't. I just, you know, we have this craven corpse. So I thought, let's play with that poem a little bit. Um, because there is something, all, there is something menacing in that poem as well. There's something, there's a sense of wonder and a sense of menace in that. Um, but what does Ben fear? I think Ben fears two things. He fears the life he's had and he fears the good life that he could possibly have. And, you know, we all go through that at certain points in our lives where the good could sometimes be more frightening than the, the, the quote, bad that we know, you know, where, where the misery that we know is more comforting than an unfamiliar good. And I think that's, that's true of Ben Riley. And so that, so the part of his program of like, Oh, I'm not worthy. I really don't do friends. I don't, I don't, I don't connect to people, whatever, whatever, whatever is because he desperately wants it. And he's desperately afraid of it. And the other thing he's afraid of is what he's already got, which is to be alone forever. So he's caught between these two visions. It's good to talk about this because I honestly, a lot of times I don't think about these things. I let the characters lead me on and, and, and their, their psychology, their emotions take over and I just follow it. So when we talk about it, I realize that I know more about the characters than I realize that I know, if you know what I mean. Oh yeah. Yeah. If there's more there than you thought. Yeah. So it's, yeah. it's almost like Ben is afraid. Obviously he's afraid of the trauma that he's gone through and falling back into that, but the, the possible good life is an unknown. And we all fear the unknown to some extent. Yeah, we do. And, and, and I've seen it in my own life sometimes that the very thing that you want is also frightening because it's unfamiliar. And a lot of times we're terrified of the unfamiliar, even if it's an unfamiliar good. Right. Exactly. Well, Something else that I read into it, and maybe, you know, it sounds like you weren't necessarily thinking about it, but I, again, I think it works so well. The last line of the poem before it reads, uh, repeats the first stanza is, uh, you know, what the hammer, what the chain, in what furnace was thy brain? And in, in my mind, it felt like you were saying that uh, the trauma and everything Ben's gone through five years on the road, he, he was being forged in a way, you know, blacksmith hammer, kind of the, that uh, being analogous to God as at the forge creating a tiger what the chain you know he's chained to to his past because he's always going to have those memories of um of peter parker and then you know in what furnace and, and we all know fire purifies fire you know can can help right. create uh and so in my mind it was almost like you were saying okay he has been through all of this he has been hammered he has been chained he has been purified by fire what can he now become. And I, I just found that fascinating. And, and the, also the, the last little bit of it, he's so angry in this story, right? Which mm, yeah. oftentimes we will uh, kind of equate to fire and, and furnaces and, and whatnot. So again, I just think even if you weren't conscious of it, th that William Blake, those lines work perfectly, not only for Craven, but also for Ben Riley. Right. And in a way they kind of work for spider side too, you know, it's, um, you know, because he's on the same journey, and we'll see more of that as the story progresses. He's on a very similar journey to Ben. It's a much more demented version of that mm -hmm. journey, you know, because he's a much more sort of degraded, demented version of the clone, you know. Um, but it's a very, very similar journey. And was it, they, you know, the clones were literally forged in fire. It started somewhere with a little test tube with a flame under it, didn't it? Mm -hmm. you know? um, so it's interesting. You know, I have to be honest, one of the reasons why I used Spider Side in this story. Um, I didn't set out to go, oh, it's like the Brothers Karamazov. I just, I, I tumbled to that after the fact, was that I never liked the character. <laughs> I'm being really honest. I, you know, with all, a lot of, in all the clone saga stuff, I was like, 
I said, I just never didn't like the character. And I thought, let me go. I like, I like to go, go to characters that I feel that have potential, but maybe that was not met. And then let's really dig in deep and let's make this character into something formidable. So that was my challenge with this story. And, and I thought it will be great. Let me pick this character that I never liked, you know, and let me bring him in and let me, let me, by the end, what happens when you connect with a character, then you fall in love with them. You take the character that you never liked and you fall completely in love with them because you have to become them while you're writing the story. Yeah. You, if you're passionate about it, you're doing your job right as a writer, you're bringing relatability to that character for yourself so that you can understand them. And then that, that comes through to the readers because I, I'll agree with you. I felt like, the first go round in the clone saga spider side felt more like a plot device than an actual realized character. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I never, never connected to it or even frankly understood what he was doing there, but you know, things happen along the way, <laughs> but, but I was really glad to have the opportunity to take, take it, take that character now and explore him. You know, the, the interesting thing is that you have to invest these characters with as, as much of yourself to make them real. And then the, um, the paradox is as soon as you do that, they become something completely independent of you with a life of their own. You know, it's, it's the great thing. And that's what you want as a writer. You want these characters to come alive and take control of the story and take off and lead you to places that you never expected. Yeah. Which is why, uh, and again, we have a lot of uh, aspiring comic writers here and I know you do story consultations and and workshops at times. I'm sure one of the things you tell aspiring writers, just because you outline something or think you have the idea for the end of the story in mind, you have to be willing to change it if the story story dictates where you're going to end up. Exactly. I always say it's great to have a map, but be ready to take out a match and burn the map. <laughs> you know, and my other, my other, my other tired at this point, tired metaphor is that the story is like this horse, you know, when you're on the horse and your goal is you're going six miles straight ahead and off you go. And then the horse starts pulling off to the left and you know, no, no, I'm going to that town six miles this way. And you have a choice at this point. You can fight with the horse or you can let the horse go and lead you someplace completely unexpected. And the horse is always right. Mm-hmm. When, you're, when, you're, when your story rears up and surprises you, that's the greatest moment as a writer. When the characters say or do something that, um, that you didn't expect, that's what you want. Um, before, we, before we started recording, you mentioned Abadazad. And I had a moment working on Abadazad, which is to me the crystallization of that. And, and it's that I was, wor- I had, I had one, this is when it was still a comic book before we did it as a book series, when it was a cross gem and I'm working on the third issue and each issue opened with a, with a prose piece. And I had the whole issue mapped out. I knew who all the characters were that were coming in and whatever, whatever. And I sit down to write. And as I'm typing, I literally type the name of a character I've never heard of before. <laughs> and when I see it there on the screen and it's like, I, 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 it wasn't in my mind when I sat down to write and suddenly this character appears on the page. So I'm like, all right, that's interesting. Well, I'll write this little bit of prose piece and then I got to get off and tell the story that I want to tell. So this character shows up, his name was Master Wicks. And I start, I write a little bit about him in this thing. And then I move on to tell my story that I plan to tell for that issue. And the story just sucks. It's falling apart left and right. Buildings are collapsing around me, you know? And I realized, oh, this, this new character wants to be in this story. And I'm like, let me get through the first half and I'll bring you in later, or maybe I'll bring you in next issue, but just, just let me tell the, forget the story that I wanted to tell. I had a whole bunch of new characters I was going to introduce that I threw out. I brought in this new character that I'd never heard of before. And the whole story came together. Amazing. So then it's like, who created that character? I know I wrote the story, but I don't know where he came from. And that's when I think about the fact, 
And, and I don't mean this as a joke, that there is this dimension of story out there. And we're, you know, we're lucky enough to get this stuff beamed into our heads, you know, mm-hmm. and we each have specific personalities and, and passions. So that story gets filtered through our personalities, but the story is out there. You know, it's like looking around, how about that writer? How about that? Writer? Oh, I'll pick that guy, you know? And, and with Abadazad, it felt like it was that like Abadazad existed and they were just sharing their story with me and they wanted me to get it right. No, not that. We want Master Wicks, you know? So, but those are the moments that you, that you pray for, you know, because the, I had absolutely no control of that. It was like, a, it was like magic to me. It's like, I don't know what this is, but I'm going to follow this when, when the message finally got through. And you always want that to happen with your stories. Yeah, and you have to be receptive for it. In a way, it's yes. uh, similar to to what I tell people when they ask me, "Well, you know how how do I break in, or, or what do I need to be prepared?" You know, it, it's like anything in life. You prepare for your opportunity so that you're ready when it comes along, but you never know when that opportunity is going to come along. So success is kind of like opportunity meets uh, preparation, in a way. Right. Meets the cosmic whim. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And it's the same thing. It's not just the beginning of your career. It's all through your career. You know, you always have to be open to happy accidents. You know, I always look at my, I've had like a 20 year career writing animation. I never planned on that. It just sort of, you know, one domino tumbled into another. And the next thing I knew I was, it was not in the plan. It wasn't something that I thought about or wanted to do. An opportunity came and, and I, I discovered that I really enjoyed it and the work was successful and one thing led to another and this whole other stream opened up for my career, but it was never in the plan, but I was open to the possibility. Always, you know, same thing with the horse, you know, you go in that way, but maybe you run into a barrier on the way. So you have to go left and suddenly there's an archway that, you know, leads you to a whole other world. And that happens in careers. It happens in life and you have to be open. You can't keep trying to bang your head against the wall because you, you still want to go that way. You have to go with the flow and kind of go through that doorway and see where it leads. Yeah, and I, I, I agree with a lot of what you're saying. And it's so, in a way, it's so spiritual to be open, to be, it's like, hey, I need to be receptive to the universe. I need to have my antennas yes. up. Uh, and I know I've heard you say, tell this story a lot too. And you even mentioned in Brooklyn Dreams that you could just lose hours just laying on the floor, staring at the ceiling, making up stories. In my mind, that's you with your antennas up. Yeah, I guess it, it is. It took me a while to figure that out, too, that it was OK. You know, when, very early on, I, I learned that for 99 percent of the time, writer's block doesn't exist. Writer's block is just your unconscious working on the story. Your conscious mind is frustrated and thinks it's not working. Just go lay on the floor for a while. Go take a walk around the block. Give your unconscious the time and the space. You know, when I was working years ago, when I was working on Moonshadow um, and and we did the first two issues. And at that point, it was the best thing I'd ever done. I was like, you know, I can't believe how good this is. And I'm working with John J. Muth, this amazing artist. And I'm in the third issue and I'm two thirds of the way through and I hit a wall. And it's like, oh my God, the story's same thing with the bodies of the story is falling apart all around me. And now everyone's going to know I'm a fraud and a fake. And the first two issues were a fluke, you know, and I'm a terrible writer and the whole thing. But I had not yet tumbled to the fact that I just needed to let my, so what I did was I wandered around the house for days, uh, you know, depressed and miserable and anguished and then laid on the floor, not out of like opening the door to my unconscious, but just because I had no choice. Like I was so wasted. I had to just lay on the floor and I'm laying on the floor and this movie starts playing in my head. And there's the whole ending of the story that I was looking for. Changed the whole story. It was perfect. And I went, oh, okay, just relax and be open to this stuff. And, that, and, and that's what happens too. It's like movies start playing in my head. 
And you know, you, you hope that when you get to the computer that you can that you can capture what you just saw. As I always sometimes think, wouldn't it be great to just jack your head into the computer and download the movie, you know? But it doesn't work that way. Although it may work one day that way one day, but I don't think I'm ready for that anyway. But it's though again, those are the moments that you live for. Well, in a way, you're telling that story about you know, first two issues are out, you feel like that you've nailed them. This, this has been Riley. You're you're almost afraid of your success. You've done so right, good. Right, now, there's right. pres- now there's pressure. That's right. That's right. It's true. And I think we all go through that because we're all human. You know, it doesn't matter how successful you are. Um, I always say the great thing and the worst thing about what I do for a living is every story is the first story. Because every time you start a new story, you're starting from the blank page. You have to build the world from the ground up. Now, yes, I've been doing this for a long time. So I have a certain set of skills I can depend on. Mm-hmm. But the, but but the skill set without the inspiration to go with it, you know, I will construct a story with you for you with a, a beginning, a middle and an end. And the character will move from point A to B to C. But you you don't want just the structure. You want that structure filled with inspiration and something real and authentic and meaningful. Yeah. You want that that spark of imagination to really yes, bring it to yes. life. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, that, let's bring it back to to the Ben Riley series you're currently okay. doing. So. When Marvel approached you, did you know right away, okay, well, Spider-Side, that's that's where we're going um, to go? Not long after. I mean, when they approached me, you know, uh, and I say this only half jokingly, I heard the words Ben Riley. I was like, yes. You know, I didn't even have to wait <laughs> to ask any other questions because I was just so happy to be reunited with my old friend, you know. Um, and then I just sat down and started thinking about that, you know, where the characters at that time, that era, and kind of what we were talking about before well, I never liked that character. So let's let's make him someone I like. It was kind of similar in a weird way to what happened with Craven. Because um, before we did Craven's Last Hunt, um, people didn't really care about Craven that much. He was sort of a B-level Spider-Man villain. He was a mustache um, twirler. Yeah. And, you know, the only reason I even thought of using him at the time was because I was reading a Marvel Universe handbook and someone had written in there, which I had never seen in the story, that Craven was Russian. And because of my love for Dostoevsky and the Brothers Karamazov and Crime and Punishment and all, I went, oh, he's Russian. And all of a sudden, this character turned into a three-dimensional human being for me. And that's why I had another villain plan for that story. Threw the other villain out and brought in uh, Craven. Um, And then he became something that, for me, he had not been before. So that's, you know, what I wanted to do with Spider-Side. You know, the readers will decide whether I succeeded or failed. but that's what I tried to do at any rate. I wanted to make him, you know, interesting and nuanced and layered. And, and, and I think he is a fascinating character. And, and I, won't, I don't want to say more because I don't want to give away anything mm-hmm. for the next two issues. But yeah, I do want to write that story with the four of them. Yeah, yeah. And I want to read that story. And uh, I mean, I thought it was fascinating. I, you know, I, I, I love your work. I'm a huge fan. And so reading this Ben Riley series and wondering, who is this villain? Who is this villain? Spider-Side, I could have guessed a thousand guesses. I wouldn't have guessed Spider-Side. Right. Right. Well, I, think, I think a lot of people don't even know that the character exists mm-hmm. or don't, you know, barely remember the character. He, you know, he didn't make a big impact back then. So, you know, you're going to get to that last page and it's not going to be like, it's Dr. Doom, you know? Mm-hmm. It's going to be like, really? <laughs> I'm not trying to hit you over the head because look at this amazing villain that I trotted out that's going to blow your mind. You know, it's, it's the surprise that it is this sort of odd off from the center character stepping into the spotlight now. But then within the context of Ben and his story, it makes perfect sense because he is, he's the ignored brother. Yeah. I mean, that's what makes it so amazing. You know, 
it, you could have created a new villain and you know had you know a great design from david baldione who's a fantastic artist and oh he's amazing know, yeah and it would have been it would have been you know great but it's the fact that you're pulling from you know this shared history and and when we talk about shared history at the time the story is set it, it's not that much shared history but yet meta it's all you know decades of publishing for right. spider side for spider right. for ben Riley. right exactly Exactly. So you're, you're, yeah, you're mining something that's so much more interesting. Uh, but I want to go back to something that you said about uh, about Craven and having him come to life for you, which I, I, again I find interesting for readers that don't know. Originally, Craven's Last Hunt, at, you know, the bones and structure of the story weren't necessarily intended for Spider-Man. So Batman story originally, right? Did you have a villain in mind when it was going to be a Batman story? You know what it was originally. The, the germ of it originally was a Wonder Man miniseries, believe it or not. It was oh, about really? Wonder Man and the Grim Reaper. Tom DeFalco, okay. God bless him, turned me down. Because <laughs> if, if he had said yes, we wouldn't be talking about Craven. We certainly wouldn't be talking about, you know, Wonder Man's last wonder today or whatever. You know, the Grim Reaper's last reap. Um, uh, and so, but I liked the idea that was in that story, which was the guy, uh, with the hero buried alive and coming, having, you know, weeks actually in the wonder man story it was six months of his life taken away so i played with that a while and i developed it as a batman story um originally with batman and the joker um got turned down as i recall by lynn ween because they were develop, starting to develop the killing joke and he thought there was elements in what i was doing with the joker that overlapped there so the joker elements like 10 years later i did for dc and legends of the dark knight for one of my favorite stories called going sane batman going sane so I see it. never throw your ideas away, kids. You can always find a way to get them out there. So I took it back again. I recast the story with Hugo Strange instead of uh, instead of the Joker. And that's where the hero putting on uh, the villain putting on the hero's costume idea came from. And uh, Denny O'Neill was now the Batman editor. And what I, my memory is. So this, you know, this has got to be 85 or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Denny's answer was, this is, this is good, but we already have our Batman graphic novel for this year. Because graphic novels were very, you know, they do like, here's the Batman graphic. Maybe they had two of them or something right. that came out. Yep. Let's, let's talk about it next year. You know? so, twi- so now I've been rejected by Tom DeFalco, Len Wein, Denny O'Neill, three great editors and great guys. And they all sent me packing. And, uh, and then the opportunity came up. Uh, I was approached by Tom DeFalco again and, and, Jim Owsley, who we know today as Christopher Priest, who was an editor at Marvel at the time, to, to take over Spectacular Spider-Man. They said, we want, we want Mike Zek to draw it. And I was like, I, I would, you know, A, I love Spider-Man, and B, I would work with Mike on anything because we had done two years together on Captain America. And I thought, well, maybe this is the place where I can take this story and build it out. And, uh, and so I created a whole new villain, sort of like Marvel's version of Hugo Strange. Mm-hmm. and started building the story that way until I came across that thing about Craven. And I called up Alice and I said, forget this new villain. Uh, I'm using Craven." But he was like, but I like the new villain. <laughs> I said, no, no, I'm throwing him out. I don't, and to this day, honest to God, I don't remember anything about the character, his name, what he did, why, anything. Um, and Craven just took over. And because Mike and I had worked together on Captain America, where we created Vermin, I thought, and we needed something in the middle to contrast Craven's view and Peter's view of being Spider-Man I brought in uh, Vermin as well. And Vermin, of course, is a big part, or, or at least his, his human self, uh, Edward Whalen, is a big part of the Ben Riley story. Yeah, I love that you brought Vermin in too, because he's almost the agent of chaos in that, that story, the, the view of, hey, life just sort of happens to you. 
That's oh, you mean in Craven's Last Hunt? Craven's Last Hunt. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And 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 he's he is the focal point where you see the difference between Craven's approach to what he thinks is being a hero, and Peter's approach. Yeah, yeah, it's fast, fascinating. And, and again, anybody who's not read Craven's Last Hunt, I don't know that you can call yourself a comic fan. I mean, you can. Don't get me wrong. Read read comics in whatever you, way you want, as long as you're reading them. But Craven's Last Hunt is uh, is seminal reading for sure. Um, I do want to go back to something you said. I'm fascinated that Wonder Man and Grim Reaper, because for those listeners that don't know, again, we're getting back to the idea of brothers and this idea yes, it's of, true. of duality. Very true. And in a way, it, you know, what I was thinking about in that story, which, you know, I'm not someone who saves stuff, so I don't like, I can't open a drawer and find those notes of the proposal or anything. Mm-hmm. But, it, you know, it's brothers. It's sort of, it's in a way, it also plays into Peter Parker and Harry Osborne, two people that love each other, but are completely at odds, you know? And to me, that's the essence of great trauma right there. You know, that's why, that's why I must prefer the, the Harry Osborne Green Goblin to the Norman the Green Goblin, because Peter and Harry loved each other, and yet they were mortal enemies for a time, you know? And all the drama that goes with that, all the emotion, all the psychology, all the little nuances, it's just, it's, you know, the stories kind of write themselves when, when you have something like that. And I think that's what I was going for in... Um, in, in that Wonder Man story. You know, it's funny, we were talking about before the things you do consciously or unconscious. And I remember early in my career, you know, I'd written a bunch of maybe a, a year or two worth of stories at, at Marvel. And I started to look back and I didn't realize that I was obsessed with themes of family and fathers and sons and brothers and all that stuff, you know? And then I started looking, oh, oh, there, there are themes here. And that's true. Every writer, whether they realize it or not, we have certain obsessions, certain themes that obsess us, and they will run through your work. No matter how diverse your work is, no matter how many genres you're working in, you're going to see the same themes cropping up again and again and again, because those are the things that compel us and obsess us in our lives. Yeah, and I think that's why I identify with your work so much, because it's this idea of who we are. Yes. Which, so many people think, okay, well, in high school, you know, college, those are sort of your formative years, maybe even junior high, you're trying to discover who you are. I don't think we ever stop trying to discover who we are because our roles in life. I agree with you. Yeah. Our roles in life, you know, okay. uh, uh, This is when I've become a a boyfriend or a husband or a father, but, but then grandfather, or, you know, you meet new people and you're sort of searching for who, who does that person see me as? Who am I? Right. And who am I in relation to them? And we're many different people in, in different situations. I'm one person hanging out with an old friend. I'm one person, you know, hanging out with my wife, I'm another person. If I'm at a convention meeting fans, I have to be another person, you know? And yet there is a thread of, of something beneath that, which is a continuity of who we are. But yes, we're always redefining that. And that question, you know, it works on so many levels. And there's who I think I am versus who maybe I really am. And that's sometimes a hard question to ask sometimes too, when you have to see the dark side in yourself. Well, I see myself as this wonderful guy, but I just did this thing and I hurt this person's feelings. And, you know, uh, you know, and that's why I love stories of identity. You know, I love, uh, you know, a lot of the old Twilight Zones episodes were always about, you know, the guy thinks he's one thing and it turns out he's something else. And Philip K. Dick plays with identity all the time. And and then there's the bigger question, not just who am I in an emotional or psychological sense, but in a cosmic sense. Mm-hmm. Why am I here? Who am I in the universe? What is, what is, you know, that becomes not just the search for self, but the search for meaning. So on all those levels, those are the things you know, for good or ill. And I know there are probably people out there that like, oh God, it's that theme again. I don't ever want to read that story again. Uh, and that's okay. You know, nobody's going to like everything. Um, but these are the things that always obsessed me from the time, you know, I was a teenager. 
and you're right. It's, it doesn't change when you, it, it doesn't, it, it's, it's still there through our whole lives. It's not just, you know, the fact that well, sometimes people say, yes, well, those are things you think about in high school and college, but then you move on and become a grown up or whatever the thing is. I think you move on into denial, perhaps some people. And they think, well, this is, you know, it's like that 50s thing. And now husband, father, I go to the work and that's what I'm, that's who I am. You know, we're a lot deeper and more complex than that. You always have to keep asking those questions and challenging yourself. And it's not an easy process because sometimes it's a painful process and sometimes it's an exhilarating process. Um, but it's really important to our growth as people on this planet, I think. Yeah, I'm glad you, that last thing you said there, growth, that's the thing. It's about growth, right? Because if yeah. you think, okay, I'm just finding... I just need to figure out what my career is or, or, you know, have the, the family and the house and the dog and the kids and, and whatever. Now I've answered that question. <laughs> it's not that simple. No, because no. if you, if you figure I answered the question, I don't need to think about that or deal with that or evolve or grow. Then you've stagnated. You've stopped yes. evolving. You've stopped learning. What's yeah. the point? What's the point yeah. of being around anymore? Exactly, exactly. And we all go through periods of stagnation. And sometimes life shocks us out of that stagnation against our will. And it feels like a terrible thing at the time. And sometimes that terrible thing turns out to be the best thing that ever happened, because it does challenge us to, to answer those questions and redefine ourselves for the next part of our lives. Well, we're getting pretty heavy here from yeah, starting out talking about this, Spider-Man. Yeah, but this is the stuff I love, JM, because here's the other thing. We've talked so much about duality or, or searching for identity. Here's the thing in your work. There's a duality that's meta there. And what I mean by that is I can read these stories. I can read Child Within. I can read Craven's Last Hunt. I can read your current Ben Riley story. And I can just read it for entertainment at the surface level. And that's fine if that's what I enjoy. But then there's a deeper meaning there. There's a duality to the story. If I want to spend time thinking about these themes that you may not have even consciously put in there, they are there. Right, right, right. And I think that's the fun of popular entertainment is that the best popular entertainment will do just that. You'll get to go on a fun ride, but that doesn't mean it's not going to ask the challenging questions and have you think about things, you know, in, in a deeper way. That, that's what I hope is the best stories will do. You want, Hell, Dickens was an entertainer, mm -hmm. you know. Actually, so is Dostoevsky, really, you know, because he also published a lot of his stories the same way Dickens did in these little chapter of his things, yeah, you know, sure magazines and things like that, which means you got to bring people along for the ride. You got to you got to have, you know, the, the you know, the, the break before the commercial, basically, you know, to have them come and buy the next issue. Um, you know, so you want to entertain people and you want to make them think. And those things don't don't fight each other. They, they should go together hand in hand. Well, what I love so much as well. You know, I always say comics that make me think, but the best ones, yeah, I'm enjoying it in the moment for entertainment, but I come back to it later. And then I realize, right. Hey, there was something there. If I'm still thinking about it the next day or the next week, something that I pick up on, uh, I, I, again, comics aren't, <laughs> aren't cheap, the cheapest entertainment. So that's more value. If you, you know, it's keeping your mind right. engaged. Right. Yeah. I was, I was talking to a friend about that recently. Cause you know, because I write that and I don't think a lot about the price. And then you look mm -hmm. at the price and you go, I think, you know, being a kid when, you know, 15 cents, 25 cents, you could buy a comic. Mm -hmm. um, if you want to follow a lot of comics now, man, that's a huge dent. Mm -hmm. If you're going to do that month after month, you got to really budget for that. Um, so I appreciate anybody that's going to reach into their pocket and buy anything I've written because it ain't cheap anymore. Yeah. But again, everybody, I encourage you to, Check out some of the stuff that we're talking about today, because, again, there, it's it's so much value for for your comic dollar. Um, well, I, I, we have to talk a little bit about the other side of the street. You've mentioned some of your work at D.C., 
maybe the other thing other than Spider-Man that you're so well known for is Justice League, uh, Justice League International, blah, ha, era, however you want to uh, label it, that you did with Keith Giffen and, and brilliant artwork by Kevin McGuire, best facial expressions in, in the industry. Ever, ever. Yeah, the best, the best acting on the page that anyone has ever done, which is meant as no insult to any other artists out there. Everybody's got their strengths, and Kevin's strength is, is that, is the, is the acting on the page. Yeah, 100%. So I had Jerry Conway on not too long ago, and he was talking about the challenges. Uh, you know, he, again, he did an eight, almost nine-year run on Justice League, and yeah. uh, there was a time where a new, new Teen Titans had come out, and it was going gangbusters, and uh, DC was putting pressure for him to, to kind of change the way Justice League was going. And then eventually it just got to the point where, you know, he wasn't having any, any fun and he, and he left. So, you know, my question is, and I came question, along. Yeah. And you came I, along. I finished you, off that run. Yeah. 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 And that's what I want to talk about. Uh, did you know that you and, um, and Kevin and Keith were going to do a kind of a lighter hearted justice league when you finished off? No, that no, run? no. Not, not at all. I, I, you know, Andy basically was stuck at that point and, and they, they knew that book was ending. Mm-hmm. So uh, Jerry, I think had plotted, uh, had an issue that he plotted that he wasn't going to dialogue. So I came in and dialogued that under a pseudonym, as I recall, and, uh, and then uh, finished off that three part or whatever it was. And then they said, we want you to basically do the end of Justice League Detroit. We want you to kill off some characters, blah, 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 blah. So I worked on that story, which I think was a four part story. And I thought that was done. You know, and and then around the same time as when Andy approached me and said, you know, we're doing this Justice League thing. Uh, Keith was going to write the whole thing himself. He doesn't feel confident enough to write it. We want someone to come in and dialogue it. And I've told the story before, but it's, you know, I'll tell it again. Um, I read Keith's plot, which had a lot of dialogue in it. And I thought, this guy doesn't need me. This is so good. You know, they they basically dragged me kicking and screaming onto that book. They dragged, talk about, we talked earlier about the, the, the situation where you think it's something negative and it turns out to be a great thing. I got dragged kicking it. Andy Helfer, he's like, he's, he's almost like a Jewish mother. He can get you to do anything, a little bit of guilt, a little bit of food. There you go. You're, you're done, you know? And Andy cajoled me into this thing kicking and screaming and it turned into one of the greatest gigs and greatest collaborations of my career because Keith and I, you know, and often with Kevin too, over 30 plus years of, you know, continued to collaborate. Um, so I'm grateful that Keith didn't have the courage to, <laughs> to do all the writing himself because he's a terrific writer on his own, as we know. Um, but he hadn't really fully branched out yet. And, you know, the, the great thing about that book was there was just chemistry there. It just happened. We did, and you say, did, oh, did you know they were going to be doing a funny book? When we started doing the book, we didn't know we were going to be doing a funny book. <laughs> that wasn't the plan. We didn't, no one sat me down and said, and we're doing a lighthearted Justice League. If, at first, if you look at the early issues, there's humor there, but it's not, it doesn't get quite as wacky as we got as we went along. You know, we discovered that as we went along through the characters. You know, Keith, by his nature, is always going to have humor in his stuff. And we're collaborating, so I'm reading the plot. Oh, so, all right. And I, my job, was to take kind of take those balls and spin them, you know, and, and, and get the characters talking to each other. And so I pick up a Keith's humor and then these guys start talking to each other and goes back to what we were saying earlier about the characters taking over. And, you know, people say, did you plan on making Beetle and Booster this central comedy team? No, they were in a scene together. They started talking to each other. They hit it off and we went, Oh, that's nice. Then Keith started putting them in the plots more. I had them talking more and they became that on their own. You know, we followed their lead. And that's what happened with the book. The humor just sort of evolved naturally. And that we had Kevin who could handle that. You know, I always say 
if Kevin hadn't been drawn that book for the, for that first year and a half or so that he did, I mean, he had lots of other great artists. I don't mean to, uh, to minimize them, but Kevin set the template. And if he had not been drawing that book, we might not be having a conversation about it today. And other artists could have been great, but he might not have captured what Kevin captured in terms of the interactions and the humor and the reactions. You know, the acting, a lot of the acting is in the reacting and the takes and the facials, the facial expressions. So, uh, you know, Kevin was such an important part of that success. Yeah, it really was lightning in a bottle. And the other thing that I, I think about, and this goes all the way back to what we were saying about uh, Marvel wanting, possibly wanting to replace Peter Parker with Ben Riley to go lighter, you know, your Justice League starts 87, 88. That, that's on the heels of, of things like Dark Knight Returns in 86 and Watchmen, where comics all of a sudden were, uh, they're more serious and they're more dark. And then you guys come along and you're taking almost the flagship title of DC in Justice League. And yeah, not that you necessarily started out to make it funny, but I think you guys always wanted to make it relatable. And you, you, you got to, you know, life is this cosmic comedy. Sometimes you got to be able to laugh and not take yourself seriously. And I think you guys really tapped into something special uh, and ran with it. Yeah. And we, believe me, we had no clue. We really, you know, whenever someone says, what was the plan? Keith always you know, says, and it's true. There, there was no plan. There was no plan other than to tell good stories to the best of our ability. And what happened with that book, just there was a chemical reaction and between the creators and, and I include Andy in that because Andy Helfer, our editor was in a really important part of that book and keeping us all in place because, you know, uh, however much dialogue you see on the page, I probably wrote a lot more, you know, and Keith's, Keith's instinct is always to jump off the edge of the cliff and, you know, Andy and I had to pull him back sometimes from going over the cliff, you know, and he had to chain Kevin down to get him to draw those pages and get him in on time. Um, so Andy was an important part of that, but it just sort of happened. You can't make that happen. You know, uh, maybe there's some genius out there who's going to sit down and go, I'm going to do a groundbreaking blow whatever, and it's going to last for decades, you know, but it never, you know, it's an accident. It's always an accident. And, and the important part of that chemical reaction is the audience. Because I've had things that I've done that I think are some of the best things I've ever done, but they might not have ignited the audience. Mm -hmm. Whereas something else, you know, Justice League to me, it was another gig. I had fun, but I wasn't like thinking, oh, this is really great. It was just fun. And but the audience embraced it and has continued to embrace it all these years later. And that's the phenomena that always delights me with both this and with Craven, too, to see all these years later, people reading this stuff for the first time and discovering it for the first time and coming up to me at convention saying, I just read this last week. It was great. That's what you hope for, you know? And back in those days, we weren't thinking about trade trade paperbacks and hardcovers that would be reprinted again and again and again. I don't know how many times Craven's been reprinted. I think there's another one coming up soon. Um, you know, uh, we didn't we didn't know. We didn't have a clue. It was just it was just a gig. Even Craven, you know, I poured, I poured heart and soul. You know, you always pour heart and soul into the stories. But once that story was done, I didn't think about its future. I didn't think about anybody remembering it. I'm a freelancer. I'm on to the next gig. It's just the way it works, you know. Well, creators of your generation, it's got to be surreal. Uh, because when you started out, comics were still, I don't want to say underground. But I mean, even when I was a kid reading, I didn't, you know, advertise the fact that I read comics i'd get beat up on the, on the playground you know right. now they're the center of pop culture yes uh, yes and it's it's fantastic it is it's and it's amazing really when you think about it it's true you know when i started in the business i remember you know 
relative saying, so this is just like a side gig on the way to what you really want to do. And yes, I had lots of other things I wanted to do, but it wasn't a side gig. I did it because I was passionate about it and I loved it, you know? And, uh, and yeah, right. And now kind of what we talked about before, all those kids reading comics are the grownups now ruling the world and they love comics and it's taken over. If someone would have told me when I was a kid that I could turn on my TV virtually anytime between streaming and network and find superhero TV shows to watch that, you know, pandemic aside, um, I could go to the movies, you know, there was a period, you know, before the pandemic, it were like, it felt like every other week you could go to the movies and see another superhero movie or another movie based on a comic book. My head would have exploded if you told me that when I was a kid, because what did I have? The Batman TV show, uh, the George Reeves Superman, you know, that was it. Every once in a while, something would pop up, something else they'd try, and it was usually something stupid, you know? But, but you know, it didn't happen, and now it's, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. And it's just an accepted genre, which is great. Yeah, it's, it's fantastic because, again, there's so much value to these stories, you know, whether you want to read it on the meta level, uh, like, or the surface level, like I said, for entertainment or the meta level to get deeper. Uh, well, I know we're running out of time here, Jam. I do want, uh, I have to, we have to talk a little bit about Brooklyn Dreams. Sure. I go back and forth on whether that's my favorite thing you've ever done. It's, it's much more autobiographical. It's, it's much more kind of slice of life. Um, and I think I've heard you say that it's one of the favorite things that, that you have done. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's, you know, I, I, I go back and forth between that and Moonshadow and, and it's sort of like with my Beatle love, just, is it Abbey Road or is it the White Album? <laughs> and, I, and I keep flipping back and forth, you know, but uh, you know, I mean, for obvious reasons, uh, you know, Brooklyn dreams is near and dear to my heart, despite the fact that the names are changed to protect the innocent. Mm-hmm. It's purely autobiographical, you know? And, and it's funny because we're talking to a publisher right now about a new edition. Uh, a new oh, publisher fantastic. about a new edition. And so I just had a meeting uh, on Zoom with uh, this company and with Glenn Barr, uh, the artist who I, I, you know, Glenn and I got on the phone last week. I hadn't talked to him in years, decades, you know? So it's been really nice to see Glenn again and, and be talking about this project and looking through the files to see what I have and what he has from back when we were working on it. But yeah, this, that was a story that came about when I was working on Moonshot. Uh, at Epic, which was my first sort of major creator-owned thing. And in Moonshadow, there was little, Moonshadow's mother was this hippie chick from Brooklyn, you know? Mm -hmm. And there would be these little slices of Brooklyn life from when she was growing up. And I thought, wouldn't it be great to just do a whole story that way? So I actually pitched it to Epic first. It was called Senior Year because it was going to follow the main character through his senior year with lots of digressions. And for whatever reason, we never did it at Epic, but I kept it in my back pocket, which you have to do when you're a writer. You keep everything in your back pocket because you never know when the opportunity will come. And then DC was launching before Paradox, where the Piranha Press it was called. A guy named Mark Nevelo was running it. And uh, I pitched him, I, re- I took out the idea, I did a, a rewrite on the proposal and he really loved it. And I had something in my head of how I wanted the artwork to look. A little bit of Eisner, sort of like a, Eisner of another generation in a way, you know what I mean? An Eisner of my generation. And he opens a drawer and I still remember this. And he pulls out Glenn Barr's artwork and it's like, well, that's exactly what I was seeing in my head. And there was this beautiful, perfect melding and molding of his sensibility and mine. And he visually told these very intimate stories of my life in this incredible way. And it was just same what we said before about chemistry. It just happened. It's not like Glenn and I were hanging out all the time, you know, getting to know each other, we're best pals. Um, it just happens on the page. The same thing with me and Keith, you know, 
back in the day, we weren't close friends or anything. We'd see each other up at the office. Andy'd take us out to lunch. We'd have an occasional phone call, but we were too busy working to really get, we didn't really become friends till years later when we got back together on formerly known as the Justice League and we talked regularly. And, you know, I talked to Keith regularly to this day. I just spoke to him the other day. Um, but you don't need personal chemistry to have creative chemistry. Mm. And with Glenn, it really was this amazing creative chemistry that just happened. And, uh, and so, yeah, this story is very near and dear to my heart. And so I'm so excited that we have this potential to get a new edition out. We want to make it a couple of years ago, Dark Horse put out a, moon, a definitive edition of Moonshadow with beautiful paper, beautiful hardcover, all kinds of extras in the back. And we want to do something very similar with Brooklyn Dreams. Really, really make it the edition that is definitive. So when you went back and looked at it again recently, talking about a, a new edition, which fantastic because yeah. I, I have the singles and they're not in the best shape. I'd love to have a nice hardcover or, or collected edition for my, my bookshelf. Uh, but when you went back and looked at it recently, anything that surprised you about the way you did the story? You wrote it so, so long ago, any things, I, I forgot I did it that way, or I, maybe I, you even forgot the memory that it was based on. Right. Surprised. You know, what was interesting was on one level, it was the easiest thing I ever wrote because these were stories that I had told my friends for years. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, it was the most difficult thing I'd ever written because these were personal stories that right. I've been telling my friend. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. This was like, there was, there's no filter between me and the audience. This is just me. And you're getting into things that are very, very personal. I remember at one point writing and, and feeling like I'm on a tightrope here. Do I really want to be up here? You know? Um, but you, you know, you need to breathe through those moments and, 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 and go through it. And so what I'd say, no, you know, I don't think it surprised me. Um, what I've learned over the years is, you know, you go back and I, I'm going to reread anything. I'm going to find, things in there that jump out. The two things happen. One of two things happen when I read an old piece of work. One is I go, oh God, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, oh, if I could just tweak that line or how did I, oh, well, that, that doesn't make sense or whatever it is. The other thing is, how did I write that? That's so good. I don't think I could do that now, you know? So there's that duality again. And what I've learned over the years is just try to respect the writer that I was at the time. There was a long mm. time when I looked at my early work, very early work in comics, and I was very sort of condemning of it in some ways. And I, and actually fans have helped me with this and going to conventions because people come up with those stories that I had problems with and they tell me how much they love that story and how much it meant to them and still means to them. It's like, oh, so there was value in that stuff. Because sometimes, you know, you look at your own work and all you see are the flaws. You don't see the good stuff. Um, and so I've learned to respect who I was when I wrote whatever story it was. And, and Brooklyn Dreams is one that I just, for me, just, it holds up. And yeah, probably if I wrote it today, would I write things differently? Always, because you always hope that, you know, you're growing, you're evolving, you get a different perspective, but, you know, you, you got to let these things stand on their own. And, and you know, it, and it still remains one of my favorites, if not my favorite thing I've ever done. That's so interesting to, to hear, you know, and I, and I do hear comic creators a lot that are, are their own worst critics. And you, you work, you have a big love of music, you know, wish we had yes. time to, to dive into that. Um, but, you know, writing things critically, uh, you know, as a music critic. And one of the things that I always say, whether it's you're reviewing music or comics or a movie or TV, whatever, nobody sets out to make a bad thing. They're pouring yeah. their heart and soul into this. Res like you said, respect that creator. You know, you yeah. can be critical of, of something you, that you didn't like. Maybe it doesn't work because it's not for you. It's for a different audience. There's never reason to there be. There's always, there's value in there. If, so, if somebody likes it, then there's value in it. Exactly. And you know, back, I was thinking, just literally just thinking about this today. Back when I was a music critic, back in the day, many years ago, 
I always, for the most part, tried to be fair, but every once in a while there'd be a review that like existed for the sheer snark of it, (laughs) you know, which now I would never do in a million years, you know? Um, And really it's, that's never merited. It's never merited. You know, if I want to go back in time and change something, I would go and destroy those reviews, you know, and rewrite them. Um, And, and, um, and, Everything has value because it doesn't have, you know, there's plenty, I'm very, very opinionated in my private life. I try not to be opinionated in my public life because I respect the work, you know, just what you said. You watch a TV show or a movie. Do you know how much work went into that? Or that book that you didn't like, that guy sweated on for years. Mm-hmm. So if, if I don't like it, instead of bitching about how much I don't like it, let me focus on the thing that I do like mm-hmm. and, and celebrate that instead of denigrating the thing that I don't like. Because it's it, and frankly, the older you get, the more of a waste of energy that is. You know, we have a finite time on this planet. Do we want to spend it, you know, uh, stewing in our negative juices, or do we want to focus on something positive? And especially when you get into, you know, with comics and TV and movies and our favorite books, these are things that ignite our passions and make us happy. So let's celebrate the things that we love. At the same time, I have to say, I appreciate a good critic, someone who really takes the time and is insightful. And if I read a review of something of mine and, and it's negative, but they have something of value to say, and they're not doing what I did back then and just being snarky for snarky's sake, you know, um, I appreciate that. Yes. Deep in my heart, you want, I want everyone to love everything I've ever done, but it's, it's, that doesn't work that way. It's never mm-hmm. going to happen. You know, it's, it's just never going to happen. It, I don't care who you are, you know, it's just never going to happen. There's nobody that's so universally loved that someone's not going to criticize their work. You know, you think, Oh, the Beatles, they're universally loved. And the minute you say that you'll find, you know, 500 guys online, going, they're the worst group that ever was. And blah, 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 blah. Which I, I don't think will impact Paul McCartney in the least, but you know, but the truth is nothing is universally loved. And at best, you hope maybe there's a 50-50 there. 50% of the audience will think it's great, you know, maybe a quarter will think it's okay, and a quarter will hate it. And that's fair. You know, if someone hates my work, it's not, you know, the the themes, the obsessions, the things that drive me are not the themes, the obsessions, and the things that drive them. So it's not going to connect. In fact, some of those themes and obsessions may turn them off. And they're going to neg- react negatively. That's okay. That's the nature of the beast. Because I'm the same way as an audience. I'll, as my wife will attest, sometimes we're in the movies and it's like, Shh, stop it. You know what I mean? Like, as I'm rolling my eyes and mumbling under my breath. But at the same time, you have to respect that. That any movie ever gets made is a miracle, considering everything that goes into making a film, that anything ever gets made. At least, you know, a novel, it's just one, one person. And their story, you know, but then you think about how hard it is to sell something and you hear all the stories, you know, J.K. Rowling, you know, how many publishers turned down Harry Potter before she sold it. I have, you know, so many projects that that I held on to for years, five years, 15 years, sometimes 25 years before I sold them, literally 25 years, you know, uh, so that anything gets out there is a miracle. And let's like celebrate the things that make us happy and bring us joy and nurture us. And the other stuff, unless it's something that's morally reprehensible, you know, you know, here's the latest comic book by Adolf Hitler or whatever, you know, I was, yeah, I can't, okay, let's, let's tear that one down maybe. Right. You know? <laughs> but most of the time you're not going to come across that. It's just, it's just some people, some, a person or a group of people out there doing their best to create something of value. And if you don't like it, that's fine. That's absolutely fine. So go gravitate to the things that you do like. Yeah. And there, again, no reason to, and it's, Social media is so f- fantastic in a lot of ways. I mean, I, I'm yeah. sure you feel the same way. The, this this connection. I mean, we we started talking over social media. That part of the reason that you're here today. The fact that I can 
do what I do for the last 10 years, talking to comic creators. You didn't have that opportunity. I didn't have that opportunity when I was, you know, 10 years old, 12 years old. I would have loved When I was a kid, the, the big thrill was like, I'd write a letter to Marvel Comics or something, yeah. you know, when I was a kid and a teenager and then they printed it. Even just the idea that they were going to read it, that I had an mm-hmm. opinion or a thought and they read it. You know, and then when that when when they started printing them, it's like, oh my god, you know. Even though you know, you know, it wasn't Stan doing it at that point, but it's like mm-hmm. in your in your little kid head, it's like Stan Lee. Or when I was a teenager, you know, Steve Gerber. But did he read this letter? You know, um, that was it. That was it. You know. So now, and the same thing on my end. For my end, I love the fact that I have the opportunity to interact with people that read and appreciate my work. You know, and occasionally someone pops up who doesn't, and uh, you know, you, you sort of ignore that and frankly again if you want to be respectful about it we can have a discussion you know if you if you want to be disrespectful you know you're going to get blocked and go away but um but i have to say honestly very rare very really very rare 99 percent of my interactions with fans on twitter and stuff has been very very positive people are and i enjoy it it's great that's why i enjoy conventions i'm not ready to go back yet because i don't trust covid yet enough Mm -hmm. But, you know, to sit there and have someone come up and, and tell you that your work is meaningful to them, I pay them for that. You know, <laughs> you know one person who really gets it, who, who really gets what I'm trying to do and takes it into their heart, that's worth like an entire career right there. One person getting it, let alone, you know, when I've gone to conventions in other countries and suddenly, you know, you're in some other country, you're in Italy or whatever, and someone comes up and they, you know, you forget that they grew up on this stuff too and, and that it means something to them and the stories have traveled around the world. Because, you know, you're sitting in your office, you're alone with your, with your story and your keyboard and you forget that anyone's even going to read it, let alone that it's going to travel around the world and, and, and do what you hope it will do, which is touch somebody's heart, which is the greatest thing. Yeah, not to get too pretentious, but it's, it's like connection on the cosmic level, you know? Yeah, no, it really is. It really is. Cause, and that's how I am as an audience. When something connects with me and certainly as as a kid and a, and a teenager and a young adult you know the books and the movies that meant some, they really meant something to me the writers the writers that impacted my life they will be in my heart forever forever you know yeah you take it in it becomes a, a part of you yeah uh, well uh again jm appreciate the time it's been fantastic talking to you um I, one yeah, this last- has been great that we've we've gone off into some interesting yeah. uh, side areas. Yeah, which which I, I love. You know, it's a it's a conversation, not just you know me asking questions and you giving answers. Uh, I, one last question though: If Brooklyn Dreams it gets this new uh, edition, it does really well. There are yeah. some uh, hints and seeds dropped in there that you you know you haven't gone back and done a sequel. Would you go back and do more? And and yeah, I've thought about that stories? already. Yeah, I've thought about that. I was just a friend of mine was just asking me that the other day. You know. Um, you know, I, I've done a couple of short stories for anthologies, which are more personal and actually, you know, sort of me walking through the story, talking to the audience. Um, but they were very, very specific. One was an anthology on about gun control. You know, one, you know, one was a, a more political thing. Um, but yeah, there's something about that that is intriguing and, and tempting. Um, there are certainly stories from back then that, that have not been told that got cut out for space. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, there's a lot of life that's been lived since then. So it, it's an interesting thought. Uh, I, I don't have a definitive answer to it, but it's certainly an interesting thought. And, I, and I, I'm not I would never say if someone came along and said, do you want to do more like this? I probably would say yes. Fantastic. Fantastic. But here's well, the truth. Here's before we finish. Everything is autobiographical. <laughs> yes. That's Spider-Man great. is autobiographical. 
And I, and I say, and it's the truth, you know, there are things that I put into a Spider-Man story. Now it's filtered through a superhero adventure in Peter Parker, but they're just as naked and autobiographical in its way as things you see in Brooklyn Dreams. I mean, Moonshadow, the whole point of Moonshadow was autobi- autobiography in fantasy. I took my life. It's the same story. Moonshadow and Brooklyn Dreams are mirror images of each other. It's the same story told in two completely different ways. One is a big space fantasy and one is, uh, is quote, real world autobiography. Um, but everything is autobiographical. Well, it goes back to what we were just saying, right? Like the things that you've taken in, the things that become a fabric of you, Dostoevsky, you know, he, yeah. he, he has become a part of you. And so then when you're passionate and writing a story, which again, to make it good, you have to pour yourself into it. So you take some of A, it goes into you, B, and now it's coming out as Spider-Man C. There's a part of you in that. Yes, you can't absolutely. Help absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, we mentioned your, your Twitter uh, and interacting. Where's the best place? Uh, what's your Twitter handle? Yeah, Twitter is, is at, at jamdmatteis. Uh, you can go to my website, jamdmatteis.com. And I should mention, if you go to my website, you'll see I have a section for workshops, which uh, I do on and off. I've been doing them for, I don't know, 10 years or so. Um, I did a couple online last year. I don't have one, another one planned right now, but they, they will be back. And I also have a story consultation business, which I love, where I work with writers one-on-one, go over their work. Sometimes it's comics, sometimes it's a screenplay, sometimes it's prose. And it's one of my favorite things that I get to do to work with, with, with writers that way. So if you're interested in that, you can go to my website and read that information there. And I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram, but honestly, I don't do much there and I don't do a lot of interacting there. I'll put something up once in a while just to kind of keep it alive. My main thing is probably Twitter and then Facebook and then, you know, and then, of course, my website. And so, I've, heard you, uh, uh, I've heard you say recently with, you know, not that COVID was made life that different for a lot of you uh, freelancers who used to working solitary at home anyway, but right. you got a chance to work on a lot of creator on stuff that stuff's yes still coming yes. down the line. there's a lot of stuff this year I, I thanks for reminding me i can't get into what the stuff is but uh 90 of what, what i'm doing this coming year is all new original stuff i've got a novella that i finished that'll be out this year and i'm just signed a deal to do another novella i have five creator-owned comics that will be coming out in different ways this year one of which will be via uh, my first kickstarter which will probably be ready in the fall um, and, um, then I'm going to be doing another for, <laughs> so it's a busy year. That's, that's fantastic. Uh, I can't wait to check it all out. So glad that you're keeping busy. Uh, we can't, we can't have enough JM Demetrius stories. Cause the other thing Thank about you. your work is that even though the themes may sometimes, uh, be the same. Uh, I think your your body of work is very diverse. And I, I try I try to keep it that way because it keeps it interesting for me. Mm-hmm. You know, if you look at it, there's like you know psychological superhero stuff, the funny stuff with Keith, autobiographical stuff, the the creator own sort of weird fantasy stuff. You know, I've done kid friendly stuff. It's like you got to keep it interesting. In fact, the great thing about these creator own series that I'm doing now, each one of them is completely different from the other. You know, they're very very different different genres. Um, so it's really fun to be working in all these different areas this year with a bunch of really fantastic artists and some of my favorite artists. Yeah. That's the thing that keeps it fun working with diverse artists as well. Oh, you've, yeah. been, you've been very lucky to work with some of the best. Incredibly lucky. Incredibly lucky. Yeah. Great. Well, uh, again, thank you, JM. It's been a, a real pleasure. Uh, 
can't wait to have you back on just because I've crossed you off the bucket list. Doesn't mean I'm not going to put you back on. Well, you know what? Maybe, maybe when, when we get closer to the time for the Kickstarter, like, oh, you know, 100%. August, August, September, because I'm going to need to really beat the drum for that one. Um, we can, we can, we can uh, reconvene and, and, and do this again. Yeah. Sounds great. Uh, so again, thanks so much for your time listeners. We want to thank you for your time as well. I'll put a link to JM's Twitter as well as his website in the show notes. If you're having trouble finding them, you can go and click there. So uh, again, thanks for listening, everybody. And we will talk to you next time. You can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening and we'll talk to you next time.